Uh, you're going to join me in this uh, Galatians 2.20 from the screen, but eventually the screen won't be there anymore. Uh, so let's go ahead and do this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. Today we are ready for chapter number five. And today's theme is this. We need to live by the Spirit, that is by the Holy Spirit, not for the flesh. Now the context of the book that we've developed over the last several weeks is that the Judaizers are loose on the, on the landscape. Remember, the Judaizers were the guys that caused trouble at Antioch. This is all recorded in Acts chapter 15. Uh, they were basically Pharisees that came into the church saying, hey, you Gentiles, if you want Jesus first, you have to become Jewish. You have to get circumcised if you're a man, and then you have to keep kosher, you have to keep the law, you have to keep the Sabbath, you have to keep all of the rules according to the way we understand them. So the church thought that they had taken care of that in Acts chapter 15, but Paul found out as he's coming through the area of his first missionary journey, on his beginning of his second missionary journey, that the Judaizers had moved from Antioch over to Galatia. And they had caused a lot of trouble. So as soon as he can, he sits down and he writes this letter. And so far, he's given his personal testimony. And he's told us that you can't be saved by the law. You're only saved by faith. And then he told us, you're not saved by the flesh. You're saved by faith. And now he's ready to remind us you know what? You need to be living by the leading of the Holy Spirit, not trying to gratify the desires of your body. With that in mind, let us look at chapter 5, verse 1, which is where we left last week, because I think it's the conclusion of the, the section that we just finished in chapter number 4. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free, Therefore, keep standing firm. Don't be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Remember, he described how the law had enslaved the Jewish people and forced them to behave themselves like a pedagogos. Remember, the, almost like a babysitting slave for the kids to make them go to the teacher and behave themselves along the way. So he said the law was basically keeping us in line, keeping us in slavery until the master came, until the teacher came. Once we met Jesus, we didn't need the law anymore. The law had done its job. It had introduced us to the rabbi of eternity. And then it retired. It went away. He says, those of you that keep thinking that it's a good idea to go back to that law, what you're talking about is giving up your freedom. How many 
freed slaves right in the post-Civil War era, do you think, were like, I want to go back to my old plantation and offer my services as a slave again to my master? You think any of them had that idea in mind? No. That's kind of what he's talking about here is, are you insane? Why would you go back to what Christ freed you from? Then he gets very specific, if that's not specific enough. Verse 2, behold, I, Paul, remember he's an apostle, he is a rabbi, he knows these things. I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. If you cave to the demands of the Judaizers and the gentlemen among you, the Gentile gentlemen among you say, okay, I'll proselytize to Judaism and I'll go through the ceremony of circumcision. He says, the moment you make that choice, Jesus is out of the picture. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. That's the rule. For the law, you have to keep it all intact, 100%. We actually saw that in the book of James, too. James was Jewish. He understood that concept. It's an all-or-nothing proposition. You want to be saved by the law? You have to keep it 100% intact. Paul says, if you accept circumcision, if you Judaize yourself, if you decide, I have to be Jewish in order to be saved by Jesus... You've actually cut yourself off from Jesus, who is the true salvation. He says, verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you've actually fallen from grace. You've actually lost yourself. You had Jesus. What does Jesus' name mean again? So you had him who was salvation, right? But you decided, no, I think I have to be saved by the law. So you set Jesus aside and went the other direction. He said, you just lost yourself. You just fell from grace. Grace is unmerited favor. Verse number five. For we through the law, or excuse me, we through the spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. What is the hope of Christians? What, what? Second. Second coming of Jesus Christ. That is correct. The great hope of Christians is the fulfilling of the final part of the story. Our souls were saved by Jesus at his first coming. Our bodies will be saved by Jesus at his second coming. So we are waiting for the great hope, the trumpet sound, the dead in Christ rising, the living in Christ being transformed, all of us being caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That's the hope of righteousness. And thus we will always be with him, Paul later writes in Thessalonians. So he says here, uh, he says, for in Christ Jesus, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. So it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. That, that is a distinction that's only minor. It might be interesting for cultural purposes. It might be interesting for genealogical purposes. But it has no salvific effect anymore. It doesn't save you. Faith working through love, that's what makes the difference. Faith in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, the gospel. And it has to be done through love. And this is where it's going to get really interesting here, because love is the core of the law, right? That was understood. When the Jewish people gave their statement of faith, it was, Hear, O Israel, he who is God, he is one, and you shall what? Love him with all your heart, soul, and strength. But they didn't stop there, did they? That was part A of a two-part great commandment. What was part two of the great commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. So even for the Jewish people living trapped underneath the law, waiting for the Messiah to come, they understood love is at the core of our attitude. We are to love God with 100% of our being, and we need to love those made by God, our fellow human beings, like we love ourselves. More on that later. Verse 7. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He's actually using a uh, sports metaphor here. Uh, those of you that love long-distance running or sprinting, you'll get this. He says, you were running so well, who cut in on you and knocked you out of the race? You know, every once in a while, you've got somebody that's coming around that corner, and they cut in front of the leader and give him a little nudge, knock him down, right? Knock him out of the race and take over the lead position. That's what Paul's saying. He says, what happened? Why did you let that guy knock you down into the cinders? Why did you let the Judaizers get one up on you? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. So this whole idea of Judaizing, it doesn't come from God who called you to Jesus Christ. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. This is lost on younger generations, right? Uh, I grew up eating fresh bread and all of that and knew that they always took a little bit of yeast or the starter batch from the last bunch and you put it in that new fresh bunch and lo and behold, a few hours later, the whole bunch has been leavened up. It's all rising and going up. That's what he's saying. He says, it only takes a little bit of something to get through the whole thing. And in this case, it's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. It only takes a little bit of Judaizing to get started in a congregation, and it shoots through the whole thing and screws it up. This is the problem with false teaching, which is why we always have to nip it in the bud, right? And so Paul says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view, but the one who is disturbing you shall bear his own judgment, whoever he is. He says, okay, 
you're my students, you're my people that I brought into faith in Jesus, that's what he's writing to them about. That, that only happened about, you know, a, a few years ago, a couple of years ago. He says, I am confident that you guys will snap out of it and get this thing taken care of. And for the troublemaker, apparently he had one particular guy in mind as the big troublemaker. He says, whoever that troublemaker is, he's going to be bearing his judgment. Now, I am confident that Paul, as a good Christian, would pray for that person to repent, would want them to repent, because that's the proper way. When we come across somebody that's doing something wrong, we should be wanting them to repent, not for God to smite them. That's not a good attitude. Maybe on that topic, we should talk about the two apostles that were traveling with Jesus, and they were supposed to get a, get a Samaritan village ready for Jesus to come and spend the night, but nobody in the Samaritan village wanted Jesus to stop there. And uh, James and John said, well, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and blow them out of existence? And Jesus said, yeah, please do that. No, he didn't. He says, you guys have got a bad attitude. You've got to knock that off. Now, that's my paraphrase, but that's basically what he said. He says, that's not God's attitude. All people living on planet Earth, God would like to be saved. And if he wants them to be saved, we should want them to be saved, which means we need to treat them as a potential brother or sister in Christ, not as an enemy. Not as somebody to be smitten. Not as somebody that we would wish would die. It's not appropriate. So Paul says, God will deal with him. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? What he's talking about there is probably something he did just a few weeks before this. Uh, remember when we were going through the book of Acts last year? Uh, and Paul was traveling through on the second missionary journey, and he came to the area where Timothy was. And Timothy is uncircumcised because his dad is Gentile, his mom is Jewish. And Paul has Timothy circumcised so that Timothy can move in both worlds. He, it had nothing to do with salvation. But Paul did have him do it. And so apparently there were some people going, hey, you go around circumcising people. Apparently, you think it is important. So Paul says, look, if that's what I'm still going around teaching, why am I still being persecuted by Judaizers like you? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. If I were to be like you going back into everybody has to be proselytized into Judaism, then I've thrown the cross out the window. And I haven't. Would that those who are troubling yourselves would even mutilate themselves. Now, I have a little bit of rejection on this translation here. I don't, some translators think it's funny to picture Paul wishing these guys would cut off their entire sex organ. I don't think that's what he's saying. He is making a play on words about cutting, but it's in this. In the Old Testament, 
It was said that if uh, Jewish people were not living according to the covenant, they were to be cut off. Meaning, they were kicked out of the community and basically told, you forfeited everything here, go away. Unless you repent. You're no longer part of our family. Bye. Go. And if they wouldn't go, if they kept sticking around and causing trouble, they were to be executed. Because... They were criminals against the covenant. That's the cutting off that I think Paul is referring to here. I think he is saying, I wish that these guys that keep talking about circumcision to you would just cut themselves off from the community. Just go away. Leave. And quit causing so much trouble. And then he repeats himself from the beginning of the chapter. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only don't turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. There it is again, the word love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. In the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There it is. Part B of the great commandment. But you already know that Jesus didn't just stop with the Jewish great commandment teaching, did he? In his Sermon on the Mount, he says, you guys have heard that it was said by the Jewish leadership, you shall love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Do you remember that? That's what the Pharisees said. If they're not your neighbor, if they're not on the same page with you, hate them. Jesus said in response to that, I'm telling you, you should love your neighbor. In fact, instead of cursing your neighbor, saying nasty things to or about them, even asking God to smite them, I suppose, instead of cursing your neighbor, you should bless your neighbor. Do nice things to them. Wish nice things for them to change their heart. And pray for them. Pray that their heart will be changed. He's still not done. He says, and, in, and instead of doing evil things, bad things to your enemy, in retaliation is what he was basically talking about. You know, tit for tat. They did something nasty to me. I'll do something nasty to them. In fact, I'm going to go up one. I'll do it even nastier. Jesus said, instead of doing bad things to your enemy, do good things to your enemy. Why? In other places where Jesus teaches on this topic, he says, so that they will be ashamed and repent. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, you guys need to jettison the attitude and adopt the attitude of God instead, which is love. Love that looks out for the other person. He says, you know what the problem is? The problem is you're letting your flesh lead you. You're letting your body tell you what you should do. And this is a problem. Um, little kids are born with innate desires, right? All of us understand that. 
over time, they have to mature themselves out of letting their bodies tell them what to do. If they don't mature out of that, there's a problem. And it has to be addressed. The same is true with spiritual growth. When we first are born into the faith, we are babies. And our bodies are still going to want to do what our bodies want to do. But in Jesus Christ and being led by the Spirit, we start telling our bodies, no, that's not appropriate. We're not going to do that. No, that crosses a line. We will not engage in that sort of behavior. No, the Scripture says, and this is where memorization is so important, the Scripture says, and then we tell our bodies what it's going to have to follow from here on out. Uh, King David said, he says, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against God. That's why memorization is so important to Christians. Paul says in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, then take care lest you be consumed by one another. See, if you want to be animalistic, if you want to just go free for all, nobody's going to survive that. It's going to be chaos. And God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order and structure and with an intention that all should come to repentance. That's his goal. That's his hope. It won't happen because of free will, but that's what he's looking for. Verse 16, Paul says, I say to you, walk by the Spirit. Walk is a euphemism for live, because when you're walking, you're moving through life. So he says, I want you to walk by the Spirit, and then you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For those are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. See, if the flesh, which is constantly wanting to go over the line for its own gratification, you, if, if you live that way, then you're not living the spirit way. But if you're living the spirit way, then you're not living the flesh way. He says you've got to understand it is in opposition. If you've got to choose a side, like Joshua is told, choose this day whom you will serve. Make your choice. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, then you're not going to be under the law. See, one of the reasons of the law that we already learned from was to basically tell the Jewish people as they were coming out of Egypt full of all sorts of bad ideas, no, stop it, don't do that, quit it, behave yourself, move along, head for the promised land. Quit dragging your feet. The whole idea of don't live by your flesh. Listen to the Spirit instead. So he says, if you try to live by the law, you're going backwards, and you're not going to succeed. Because the law can't control the flesh. Rules don't fix bad behavior. It only stifles it in certain circumstances. You understand that, right? 
every time the government makes a new rule, people eventually start avoiding that rule, finding loopholes, or just totally blowing it off. Isn't that true? Anybody want to contend with that? That's why we always need new rules. Another rule. Because they weren't following the last rule. That's because that's law. And the flesh does not respond to law. Verse number 18. Excuse me, 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident. Now I don't want to camp out on this, but I am going to give a quick definition of each one of these. Which is immorality. The, the word is a catch-all term for any type of sexual activity outside of the boundaries of God's design. And God's boundaries of design were one man, one woman together for a lifetime. Anything beyond that, premarital, postmarital affairs, whatever, all of that is sexual immorality. Any deviation from God's design. Impurity. Impurity is a catch-all term for all the nasty choices that people will do. Sensuality. Sensuality is, it's, again, it's a catch-all term for the fact that whatever you want to do, you just do it. You have no restraints on yourself. Idolatry, which everybody likes to think about the little Buddha or maybe the little Aphrodite image and then bowing down to it or offering food items to it. That is idolatry, but idolatry in its full-blown reality is just giving your devotion to something other than God. So anything could be an idol if it takes you away from God. Sorcery. The word sorcery is where we get our word pharmacy, pharmakia. It's the use of mind-altering substances to tap into the spirit world to basically check out of this world. And it's a problem. It was a problem back then, it can be a problem now. Medications, the pharmacology is involved in that, has a good purpose, but it has to be controlled, right? Or the people will lose control and become enslaved by it. But the bigger problem is trying to get into the spirit world. Uh, the whole marijuana experience, you can talk to some of these guys, and they, if they're honest with you, they will tell you. One of the things that turned me on to the idea of marijuana was it expanded my mind into a world that I did not know before. Not appropriate. Scripture says it's part of the deeds of the flesh. Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, Factions, those all really go together. It's basically kind of a mixture of this idea of people saying, I'm part of my group, and I'm against everybody that's not in my group. And if they belong to another group, I don't like that group. There's even some political wording in here. Some political wording that has the idea of, my group is always right, no matter what they do, and I will back them. And the other group is always wrong, no matter what they do, even if sometimes they do things that look like I want them to do, doesn't matter. They're not my group, so I'm against them. 
Does it sound familiar? Every government in the world eventually descends into that sort of anarchy where you've got two or more groups competing with one another and neither one of them will treat the other group with any type of respect or consideration. And it's not appropriate according to the scripture. It's fine to be political because politics is all about the governance. But if you start treating people with hatred and spitefulness and go against the scripture, politics has become your idolatry. Envying. Envying is about being upset that other people have stuff that you don't want them to have, honestly. You don't have it, why should they have it? That's not appropriate. Drunkenness, losing control of your choice mechanisms. Not appropriate. Carousing, quite the interesting word. It's about a traveling party. Just constantly going from place to place. It's rather equivalent to the idea of a pub crawl, honestly. Paul says, these are examples of what I'm telling you your flesh is prompting you to do. Because your flesh is all about you. And only babies think it's all about them. And so Paul's basically saying, you guys need to grow up. And here's the ultimate way you grow up. He says, all of these things of which I forewarn you, just as I've warned you ahead of time, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot engage in this sort of self-centered, narcissistic behavior and think you're okay with God, because you're not. You won't get into the kingdom that way. This is the way you get into the kingdom. And this is the... This is the place that you need to memorize. The fruit of the Spirit. Fruit, I know, you want to think about like a pear or an apple, grapes and things like that. That's not the word here. It can refer to those things, but it's mostly the idea of anything a plant produces. It's produce of the plant. It's the mature outcome of any plant. It's the purpose of the plan, is to make this. And so for Christians, for followers of Jesus Christ, for those who are being led by the Spirit, this is what we should be producing. The fruit of the Spirit is, I, I want all of you to do this together from the screen, if that's what you need, first. And then I'm going to go back and hit each one individually. Ready? Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things, there is no law. There is no law on the face of the earth that can stop you from producing this. They can try to make it, but it won't stop you. Because if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of your heart, and you're led by him 
in your day-to-day -day work, this will be the natural outflow. Love, we've already talked about that. This is the love of God. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and read the description of love there. It is not about itself. Love is about everyone else. It looks out for the other person regardless of the cost. And this is why God constantly is harping on this one. Because for some reason, we have a hard time getting it right. We want to keep falling back in the flesh and treating everybody as enemies when they don't do things the way we like. We want to hate them. And the scripture says, you can't if you're a Christian. Because the fruit of the Spirit starts with the love of God. Joy. How many of you are happy? Are you happy being a Christian? Do you get up in the morning and go, I am so happy that I have Jesus Christ as my Savior. I am so happy I'm full of the Holy Spirit. I'm so happy that I've got eternity ahead of me. I'm so happy that I've got a church family. I'm so happy I've got church friends and Christian friends, and I can go anywhere in the world, and I can probably find church friends there too. I'm happy. Are you there? Why do some of you guys frown so much then? One of the fruit aspects of the Spirit is we let the joy of the Lord be our strength. And we let it show. And we've got peace. Peace is not the absence of war. That's a worldly ideal. Peace can be there in the middle of war. Peace is the restoration of a proper relationship, ultimately. Jesus said to his apostles, my peace I leave with you. A perfect peace. A peace that passes all human understanding. It's not the type of peace that the world can give to you. Only I can. Do you have peace? Are you able to go, no matter what the world throws at me, no matter what's going on in the world, I'm good with God. I have a relationship with him. We can move forward. Which kind of brings us to patience. Patience, the old-fashioned King James word, was long-suffering. It's the idea of hanging in there no matter what. Remaining in place underneath whatever comes, you're going to stick it out. Kindness. How can you use, how can you give a different definition to kindness than kindness? It's just being nice. Being nice to everyone around you. It's the being, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, please, thank you, excuse me, uh, can I help you? Whatever it takes to show human kindness to everybody else. It doesn't cost us anything. It doesn't even matter if that other person doesn't like you. You should be kind to them. Because that's what the scripture says you should do. It's part of the fruit of the Spirit. If, if that's not being produced in you, then that must mean you're stuck in flesh zone still.
faithfulness. Well, we have the faith in Jesus Christ. That's good. But the faithfulness that's got in mind here is trust. Being trusted. Are you a person of your word? See, a, a Christian should be trustworthy. When we say something, we mean it. We don't have to swear on a stack of Bibles. When we say yes, we mean yes. When we say no, we mean no. When we say maybe, that's exactly what we mean by it. That's, that's faithfulness. Gentleness. The old King James word is meekness. A lot of people get this weird idea that being meek is weak. No, it isn't. I can take you to an, uh, examples in Greek literature where they're talking about a war horse getting ready to go into the battle. And it's described as meek. The meaning of meek means power under control. That's what it means. It's what happens when you, as a great big adult, pick up a little tiny infant. You're gentle. You keep your power under control as you hold that baby. We should be having gentleness in our associations with the people around us. We keep our powder dry. We don't just knee-jerk our way through life. Which brings us then to the climactic one, self-control. Self-power. I can't help myself. They made me so mad. You need some fruit of the Spirit. Because it doesn't matter what the other side does. You are responsible through the power of the Holy Spirit living in you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, to have self-control. Paul finishes with this. Against such things there is no law. You can't make a law against those things. You can't stop that. Now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Oh, let's do it. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by, for the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's re-emphasizing that concept here. He says, those who belong to Jesus Christ. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh. So you're not being led around by the flesh anymore. You're not fulfilling those things we read earlier. But instead, you have done this. If you live by the Spirit, then let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. When we become Christians, we have an entire attitude transplant. God's attitude gets transplanted into us. And none of us should ever want to allow that transplant to be rejected. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Paul getting these things written down at the prompting of your Holy Spirit. Lord, 
Sometimes it is hard living in this world to not fall back into the flesh. Help us to keep that old man or woman crucified with Christ. And that the new one, the new creation, the new birth is filled with the Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. May that be true for every last one of us here today and all our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Now help us to not be just hearers of the word, but to be doers of that word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.